Well, we're continuing our sermon series called Transformation, doing an in-depth look at how exactly do we change uh, over time to become more and more like Jesus? How does God do that process? How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives to do that? But for, to start off today, I want to tell you about a particular little town in France. It's in the southeast of France, and it it's called the village of Le Chambon sur Lignon. I'm sure you can correct my French pronunciation later. Small town, population 2,500. For many travelers to central France, this little town of Chambon is not kind of the major destination. Just uh, 40 kilometers to the west is an amazing village called Le, Le puy en volay And it's a jewel of the region. It's got these incredible volcanic pillars. Those are amazing. And uh, they built structures on top. People go far and wide to see those. Just 20 kilometers north of Chambon uh, is another town called saint bonnet le foy And it's the hometown of a triple Michelin star chef, Regis Marcon. And there's amazing restaurants there. So people go to that town for the food. There's all these amazing places around it, but Chambon is just kind of a small, quiet little village. But the village of Chambon has the most incredible history. It will leave you in utter amazement when I tell you about it this morning. But first, we need a little tiny bit of background information. If we rewind the clock of history back to 1517, a man named Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. And he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it kind of caused a reaction all throughout Europe. And throughout the 1500s and the early 1600s, these Protestant ideas began to spread. The Protestant Reformation, it was transforming, it was renewing people's faith, bringing them back to God. And by the 1600s, many French people had embraced those Protestant ideas. They were sweeping through France. And at that point in history, the King of France and the Roman Catholic Church were tightly wedded, and they saw this as a threat to power. So they heavily persecuted these French Protestant Christians. They were known as Huguenots. And by the end of the 17th century, the persecution had become so intense that most Huguenots had fled the nation of France. They had gone to live in other European countries, but a small contingent fled to this little town of Chambon. And by the time of the Second World War, the town was almost entirely Protestant, an anomaly in Roman Catholic France. Well, as the Nazi regime in Germany took over, they took over Austria, Poland, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, they began the systematic extermination of Jewish people, what we today call the Holocaust. And the town of Chambon became a beacon of hope for those Jews fleeing from the Nazis trying to escape. By the end of the war, this is absolutely amazing, that little village of 2,500 people had welcomed, hid, and smuggled out to the safety of Switzerland over 3,000 Jewish men, women, and children. It is speculated that because of the, their ancestors, the Huguenots, 
were persecuted, that this town was naturally sympathetic to another people group going through persecution. Well, there was a man in the United States, and his name was Philip Holly, and he had served in the Second World War. He went on to become a professor at uh, several big universities in the U.S., and he was absolutely fascinated by this town. So in the early 1970s, he went to Chambon, and he met many of the elderly residents who had exhibited such incredible bravery. And he went there wondering what sort of amazing people is he going to encounter, these courageous, ethical heroes that would risk everything to save other people. But as he got there and he met them, he was just overwhelmed and struck by the ordinariness of the town. These people weren't dazzlingly brilliant or extremely courageous. Rather, these were just good French people working hard, drinking cafe au lait and eating baguettes. And he was kind of puzzled. He's like, how did this happen? So he did all this research. He asked all these questions. He dug into the history. And he came to the conclusion that the one factor that united all of these people in this town was their attendance in church. Sunday after Sunday. There were several little churches in town, and the, the kind of the leading one was run by a pastor. His name was Andre Trocme. And his wife, Magda, was an amazing inspiration of love and courage. Magda told Philip Holly that she always recalled the first Jewish person who had come to their town. It was early in 1940, and a German Jewish woman arrived half frozen on the doorstep of the church building. Having fled Nazi Germany, traveled through occupied France until someone told her, go to Chambon. After that, more and more and more Jews fleeing from the Nazis found their way to Chambon. And then Pastor Andre Trochme approached a Quaker Christian organization called the American Friends Service Committee. And they were trying to figure out a way to get children, Jewish children, away from the Nazis smuggled to safety. And he volunteered his town and his church and the people. They said, send the children to us. We will make sure they get to safety. So from Chambon, many refugees were smuggled illegally across the mountains into Switzerland where they were met by other Protestant resistors in a tight-knit network. The resistance movement soon grew beyond just those Protestant communities. It started to come to other French villages around, the villages of Fay, Surlignon, and Tense. And those had predominantly Roman Catholic-based populations. They became heavily involved in the rescue efforts. And I think French people are generally good at convincing others because somehow they managed to convince the police officers. Now, you got to remember that France at that point had the Vichy government. It was like a puppet government run by the Nazis, and they fully controlled everything, even the police. But somehow the people in these towns convinced these policemen to aid them in helping these Jews escape. And so the policemen would quietly bring children and women and men to the t town of Chambon, and they would go from there to Switzerland. 
So Philip Halley goes there. He interviews these people, expecting to find unbelievably courageous, remarkable people. Instead, he simply finds ordinary people going to church every single week. Over time, they became by habit people who just knew what to do, and they did it. When it came time for them to be courageous, the day the Nazis came to town, they quietly did what was right. One old woman who faked a heart attack, I love that, she just fakes his heart attack when the Nazis came to search her house. This is what she later said. She said, Pastor always taught us that there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. When our time came, we knew what to do. Isn't that amazing? It's such a beautiful example of the slow process of transformation, the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus over a lifetime. And here's the truth this morning. When the moment of our testing comes, the moment of big opportunity, it won't be that one brilliant moment of courage, but rather the habits of discipleship, that habits of transformation built into us over a lifetime that will cause us to act. Well, I want to dive in this morning to a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open that. Go to about the three-quarter spot. You'll find the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you're following along at home, the verses will be on the screen as well. And it outlines three crucial habits that every follower of Jesus should have. We're going to dive into our text and take a look at the first one. Hebrews chapter 10. We're beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I've entitled this first point, Free in the Vertical. What do I mean by vertical? Well, I'm imagining kind of that as a metaphor for our relationship with God. Jesus says when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So you kind of think of our relationship with God as vertical. Now, do I really think heaven is straight up from Ladysmith into the unit? No, actually, I don't. I think it's probably more in the spiritual uh, dimension. But regardless, it's a good metaphor. Our relationship with God up and down, our relationship with each other, we could call horizontal. So I've entitled this point, Free in the Vertical. And what I want us to look at is the amazing freedom, the confidence, the lack of guilt that a true follower of Jesus has in their relationship with God. It's important to remember that the whole book of Hebrews, as the title suggests, was written for the Jewish people. It was to show them, here's the old covenant. Here's all the ways that God set up for you to be in relationship with him before Jesus. But now that Christ has come, he has fulfilled all those things, and there is a new way to be in relationship with God. So the whole book of Hebrews is this contrast, the old way and the new way, the old covenant 
and the new covenant in Jesus. So we're going to go through these verses, and there is so much richness here, so many amazing details. First of all, it tells us, since we have confidence. What does that mean? Well, it really means approaching God in prayer, freedom and openness. We can confidently march into God's throne room at the center of the universe. Right off the bat, pushing our minds and hearts to awaken to the freedom that should characterize our everyday reality as a Jesus follower. I've talked with so many people over the years that I said, tell me about your understanding, your image when you think of God. And they're like, well, to be honest, I think of a really old guy with a huge stick and he's a little bit angry and if I step out of line, he's going to whack me. And honestly, that's such a tragic misrepresentation that is so not true of God. And this verse specifically tells us, get rid of those kind of images. God is almighty, he's powerful, he's holy, but because of Christ, we can go in to his throne room with confidence. It says to enter the most holy place. What does that mean? Well, in the old covenant way of relating to God, there was a high priest And as the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, wandered through the desert for 40 years, God gave them a portable worship sanctuary. It's called the tabernacle. And they would set up this amazing tent. And inside it had a section uh, set off by a curtain. It was called the most holy place, the holy of holies. And the only way that someone was allowed to go in was through the sacrificial blood of animals. Uh, A sheep or a bull had to be killed, the blood had to be shed, and it purified them to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. Contrast that with the new covenant by the blood of Jesus. Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for all people from every tribe and nation all around the world for all time. So much superior. We're beginning to see the contrast, the old covenant, the new covenant. It keeps going. It says it's in Christ, it's a new and living way. How's it new? Well, it's new because it was previously unavailable. Nobody but the high priest once a year could enter the holy holies. One time every year, one person in all of planet earth, the very presence of God. But if you think about what Christ accomplished on the cross, Every single person all around the world who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior has full access to the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? Used to be limited to one person, now we all have that freedom. So that's the newness of it, but then Hebrews tells us it's a living way. How is it living? Well, we actually worship and we walk and we get to know Jesus who is alive. He's resurrected. He is not dead. You think about all the world religions, new religious movements around the world, they have a special place to go to honor their founder. You can go to the Green Dome in Medina in Saudi Arabia and see Muhammad, the founder of Islam. You can see his tomb right there. People go, millions go every year to see that. Then you think about Sikhism. The founder of Sikhism was a man named Guru Nanak. 
And you can go visit his tomb. It's in a place called Qatarpur, Pakistan. You can go see his tomb. Christianity stands in total distinction to all those other world religions and religious movements. There is no tomb. I got to go on a tour of Israel back in 2012, and at one point they took us to the garden tomb area. We don't really know if that's exactly the tomb where Jesus was laid or not. But the point was, as we stood there, our whole little group, and we're looking at it, the thing is empty. There is nobody in there. And that's the amazing thing about the Christian faith. We don't worship a dead Savior. Jesus is alive. It's a new and living way. Well, the contrasts keep piling on top of each other. It says it was opened for us through the curtain. What does that mean? Well, in that tabernacle or in the temple that Solomon built, that section of the Holy of Holies was partitioned off by a huge curtain. Historians have have found records that it was this amazing piece of cloth that was just so thick. It was incredibly tough, incredibly thick. And once a year, the holy the high priest was able to push it aside and go into that Holy of Holies. Whereas the new covenant in Jesus, what he did on the cross, his work, the the giving of his life, the suffering he went through, that became the thing that pushed that curtain aside forever. In fact, it tells us that when Jesus died, that curtain was ripped in two. Forever we have access the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. And then it says, since we have a great high priest, of course, we've been talking about the one high priest leading up to Jesus, but with Jesus, it's not just one human being who was voted and elected to be the high priest, it's God's own son chosen to be the ultimate high priest forever and ever and ever. And then it says, over the house of God, obviously that was the tabernacle and the temple, But in the new covenant, when we fully embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us an amazing fact. We become the temple of God. Jesus takes up residence in us. Amazing. Sincere heart. In the scriptures, the heart often represents the inner life of a person. It's our thoughts. It's our will. It's our emotions. It's our character. And it says we're to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Can you just feel it? There's no guilt in this relationship. There's no fear. It's full assurance. And finally it says our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us and our bodies washed with pure water. The old covenant, it was constant ritual purification. A lot of it was with water. Before the priests would be able to go into the temple, they would have to have a full bath and then wash their hands. Jewish people still do this today. When I got to go to Israel, we went to the Wailing Wall. You've seen that on TV where people go and pray at the Wailing Wall. It was an amazing experience. We all had to wear a kippah, a little hat. You know the shocking thing I found out? I always pictured it as very plain, maybe kind of brown or tan colored. They make them in different styles. They have NHL kippahs. You can get a Vancouver Canucks one. That's the oddest thing. 
I was like, that's weird. So we all got these kippas and then we went to pray. But before we could go, we needed to ritually purify. So we, the men went into this washroom, the women went into the other one, and there was these jugs full of water and you had to pour it and cleanse your hands. Then you could go pray. Now, full respect to the Jewish people, it's a beautiful tradition, but really God built that in and designed it so that it would be fulfilled in Christ. And we don't need to do that because he has done it for us. Absolutely amazing. So the bottom line is you can see the contrast between the old covenant, the new covenant, the way of Jesus is so much superior. Now, if all of that is true, then our Christian life, walking with Jesus, the process of transformation we are talking about, shouldn't be characterized by guilt or by someone just doing it out of duty. I remember reading a book by the famous preacher Chuck Swindoll, and he said this, he said, it's a shame that so many Christians I meet have so little joy in their lives. They look like you've been sucking corn through a Coke bottle. What an image, that's hilarious, I don't know where you got that, like, super odd but I'm like you know what I've met a lot of people like that (laughs) they are pretty grouchy they're pretty they, they just don't have joy and I think probably the basis of that is not understanding this we have freedom we have confidence we have assurance in our vertical relationship God the Father the Son the Holy Spirit one God he doesn't just put up with us The book of Psalms says God delights over us. Isn't that amazing? He wants us to progress in our Christian life absolutely for sure. He wants us to continue to have the sin, the ugliness in our lives chipped off and the goodness and beauty of our words and actions come through. But here's the thing. We don't go through this process of transformation out of fear or duty or guilt. We go through it because of our immense thankfulness and joy. Someone said it this way, Jesus has done it all for us. Of course we would want to live for him. That's the true way to live the Christian life. It's a grateful response. All right, we've talked about the vertical. Now we're going to move to the horizontal, our relationship with our fellow followers of Jesus Picking up in verse 23, says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It was a man uh, in the, he was born in 1901, died in 1995. His name was George Crane, and he was a psychologist as well as a newspaper columnist. And he had a private practice, a psychology practice. People would come in for counseling. And one day, a woman walked into his office, and she was just angry. She was full of hatred for her husband. She just despised him. And this is what she said to George Crane. She said, I don't only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. So Dr. Crane kind of leaned back and he said, hmm, I have a suggestion for you. He said, I think you should go home and act as if 
you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no effort to please him, to enjoy him, make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love, then you can drop the bomb and tell him you're divorcing him. That will really dig it in. That will just tear him apart. With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful. He Will he ever be surprised? Yes, I'm going to do this. She did it with enthusiasm. For two months, she acted as if she loved him. She showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. But after the two months, she didn't come back into the office. So Dr. Crane called her up and he said, so what's going on? Are you ready to go through with the divorce? And she said, divorce? Never. I discovered I really do love him. You know, her actions had changed her feelings. Somebody said it like this, motion resulted in emotion. Now, I think that's really relevant to our relationships as a local church. If you think about it, a local church, what brings us all together? It's actually Jesus. That's who brings us all together. We come from different backgrounds, different friend groups, different ways of doing things. We have different interests. We're really diverse. Take any local church and you will find a huge amount of diversity. So in some senses, if you just lump a whole bunch of people together, you're like, how's that going to work? But here's the thing. Sometimes, if we're totally honest, the person kind of sitting in the next row from us in church actually annoys us. So what do we do with this command in Hebrews 10? Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Well, I think we can actually take a lesson from Dr. Crane and what he told that woman. Sometimes we have to start with actions. The emotions will follow. Motion results in emotion. And I think the writer of Hebrews maybe had a glimpse of that because he says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's pretty hard to be mad at someone when they just show up at your door and bring you a meal when you're in need. It's pretty hard to be mad at someone when they just show up and wash your car. It's pretty hard to be mad when they do something kind, give you a card, give you a phone call. I think that's how God designed the body of Christ to function. All right, verse 25, our final point. We're going to dive in here. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Not giving up meeting together. That's been true for the last 2,000 years of Christian history. Christians should be gathering for worship, for prayer, for learning. But it seems really acute right now in the middle of a pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic. I was talking with someone recently who told me of their up and down success. They said, you know, I, I watched our services online and usually I, I do pretty good for two or three weeks. And then I I'm, have full intentions to watch the next one. 
But all of a sudden, my friend called, and they had this amazing activity, and it was Sunday morning, and I thought, you know what? I'll go do that with them, and I'll watch the service later. But they said, to be totally honest, I realized my whole week went by, and I never went back and watched the service. Then they made this amazing statement. They said, before COVID-19, I had been attending services pretty regularly. But when did that happen? When the pandemic happened, it broke my routine. It ruined my newfound habit. I have to get back to that. Isn't it fascinating that Hebrews 10.25, written thousands of years ago, even mentions the word habit. Habits can be good or bad, positive or negative. The writer of Hebrews says, let's not form the bad habit of giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing. And it's so true, when we prioritize joining together in worship, joining together to hear a sermon, apply it to our lives, prioritize to gather to pray and tithe and hear the Bible read, a wonderful habit takes hold of our lives. And here's the unexpected thing. By simply participating in that over a long period of time, by jumping into it with your heart, It actually shapes and forms and changes us. We began with the amazing village of Chambon in southeastern France. The regular habit of going to church, of worshiping and listening to their pastor, André Trocmé, the regular habit of gathering for fellowship, formed the heart and character of those people. Ordinary people they may have been, but they did something absolutely remarkable, totally extraordinary. God worked through them to save the lives of over 3,000 Jewish children, women, and men. When the moment of our testing comes, the moment of our big opportunity, it won't be the one brilliant moment of courage, but rather the habits of discipleship built into us over a lifetime. That will cause us to act. Who knows what gathering for worship each week, whether we're online or in person, as we get to do next Sunday in our back parking lot, who knows what transformation that regular habit could build into your life and my life. That sounds like it's worth getting out of bed for on a Sunday morning. Amen? Amen. And uh, we're going to ask...